The Man Who Lived Twice is a book about a Cornish mercenary called George St. Ledger Grenville. And um, he fought on four different continents, saw more foreign wars than any other 19th century figure. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to do a kind of uh, renaissance romance about him, you know, a sort of uh, promiscuous relationship between fact and fiction. Uh, what I'm going to read you, it's an extract from an early chapter. It's the second year in the American Civil War, and Grenville is the adjutant general uh, to the second Kentucky Cavalry, who were otherwise known as Morgan's Raiders. Oh, I'd better put my specs on. It was a bleak midwinter in Tennessee, and Mefreesborough froze nightly in the weather's icy grip. With the mercury plummeting, his citizens wrestled with the dark comedy of wartime shortages, their easygoing laughter stifled in frigid throats as they lamented the absence of candles, matches, and cough medicine. Trapped in their homes, short of food and warm clothing, Memories had long since faded of the euphoric day when the Confederate flag had been hoisted over the town's courthouse. The war had begun with pageantry, bright uniforms and mass bands. It would be over, people said, in a matter of weeks, and young men had rushed off to enlist. How wrong they had been. By the winter of 62, innocence had evaporated back into the cold, dry air. There would be no easy victory. Yankee soldiers were just as brave as their southern counterparts, and there were many more of them. All kinds of foreigners were fighting for the Union. German, Polish, and Italian immigrants were joining up in their droves, while Confederate generals cried out for reinforcements that were not forthcoming. Yet, as the year ended, there were still grounds for hope, particularly in Tennessee, where on December the 7th, John Hunt Morgan pulled off an astonishing victory at Hartsville when his raiders surprised a much larger federal brigade and took 1,800 prisoners. Within hours, the telegraph wires were humming with the news that, like a Roman general, Morgan would march into Murfreesboro the following morning to celebrate his military triumph. Morgan's victory march heralded a weekend of wild celebrations in which his cup positively overflowed. On Saturday, he had the rank of Brigadier General conferred on him by no less a person than President Jefferson Davis. And on Sunday, he married Mefreesborough's most beautiful girl in a ceremony attended by every member of the Confederate High Command within riding distance. In a time of death and sorrow, John Hunt Morgan was the dashing cavalier whose presence made female hearts flutter and Matty Reddy was only the latest in the long line of ladies to fall in love with his fleshy good looks and celebrity. As a cynical observer, George Grenville spoke out against the marriage. A wife was a hostage to fortune, he told Morgan. She would slow him down, make him more cautious. Besides which, Matty was too young for him. There was a 16-year age gap between them, which beauty alone couldn't bridge. That Grenville should be offering his commanding officer advice on such a highly personal matter was a reflection of the changing nature of their relationship. Always quick to judge his fellow man, the English adjutant general had lost respect for Morgan, 
who, in his estimation, was neither shrewd nor particularly intelligent. Whatever Morgan thought about Granville's comments, it did not prevent him from asking his subordinate to be a groomsman at his wedding, nor did it stop the outspoken Englishman from accepting the invitation. So, on that Sunday evening in December, Granville stood in front of a bathroom mirror in the ready household brushing down his dress uniform. To donate his rank as a Confederate colonel, he was kitted out in a double-breasted cadet grey tunic with two rows of buttons and cavalry yellow collars and cuffs. He was also obliged to wear light blue trousers with a yellow seam stripe, a tasseled waist sash and a short sabre in its scabbard. All present and correct, he muttered to himself, adjusting his leather sword belt and taking a long, hard look at the wearer of this fancy dress. A handsome enough face with bold aquiline features and a full head of hair stared back at him. But there were flecks of grey in the hair and wrinkles forming around the eyes and mouth. There was no denying it at 44, George and Judge Grenville had entered middle age with a body that was beginning to creak, particularly at night when the urinary obstruction affected his ability to pass water. He'd always believed ageing would be a slow process now it seemed in a tearing hurry. It was time to join the wedding guests. But his way was blocked by a little girl sitting on the staircase trying to fix a black bow in her glossy chestnut ringlets. Excuse me, sir, she said. I wonder if you tie this silly bow for me. It'll be my pleasure, replied Grenville gallantly. The girl stood up. She carried herself with extraordinary grace for one so young and wasn't in the least self-conscious. How old are you? How old do you think I am? Perhaps twelve, he guessed. Actually, I'm nine. Mama says I'm precocious, whatever that means. It means you're flowering at an early age. Why, thank you, sir. The girl curtsied, showing off the green sprigged muslin dress she was wearing. Grenville thought her enchanting. May I know your name? It's Rose, but you can call me Rosie. What's yours, by the way? George, George St. Ledger Grenville, ready to slay dragons upon command. Now you're teasing me, George. Have you done much killing Yankee soldiers, I mean? He was surprised by the intensity in her emerald eyes. That's a bloodthirsty thing to say, Rosie. I'm a fierce little reb, she replied. I hate Yankees. They put me in prison earlier this year. I used to cry myself to sleep from hunger. What would a nine-year-old girl be doing in jail? As a practitioner of the art, Grenville reckoned he could spot a tall story a mile off. She was trying to impress him. You must have been very naughty for that to happen, he said, humouring her. No, I hadn't done anything. It was Mama whom they wanted to lock up. A mother and her daughter arrested and left to rot in prison? Was this one of those sensational tales of Yankee soldiers raping women and bayoneting children currently doing the rounds? Delicately bred southern ladies seemed to expect the worst, almost gloried in it. So what's happened to your mother? Well, where is she now? Down there, Rosie pointed through the banisters to a woman surrounded by Confederate officers, and the sight of her drove everything else out of his mind. He'd seen many handsome women in his time, but none more seductive. With raven-black hair parted in the middle and pulled back from a pale olive face, in which huge, deep-set eyes were offset by a broad brow, a firm mouth and a pointed chin, Rosie's mother positively radiated sensuality. 
There was a boldness to the way she displayed herself in an off-the-shoulder burgundy velvet gown and a cynical edge to the laughter she bestowed on her male admirers. Would you like to meet her, George? the girl asked him. I would indeed, Grenville replied, trying to keep his voice as neutral as possible. The downstairs parlour was a blaze of colour. Although candles were in short supply in Mephreesborough, scores of them had been lit to create a romantic glow. The walls were decorated with holly and winter berries. Mistletoe peeked through the branch supports of the chandelier, and a huge log fire roared in the hearth. Black waiters carrying silver trays dispensed frosted julep cups to the wedding guests, who were so busy enjoying each other's company that they hardly seemed to notice what they were drinking. The room hummed with voices, punctuated by light-hearted laughter and the rustle of skirts. As he weaved his way past giggling teenage girls flirting with Morgan's cavalry officers, Grendel couldn't help noticing how the elderly matrons anchored along the wall on delicate gold-painted chairs were giving his childish companions sour looks and whispering behind their swishing fans. What could she have done to earn their disapproval? Or was it her mother they were talking about? A boy forced his way through the crowd and grabbed Rosie's arm. You'd better come now, he said with the urgency of youth. The bonfire is lit and the soldiers are about to set off the fireworks. Rosie shook her ringlets. Not now, Harry. Can't you see I'm escorting this gentleman? The boy looked so crestfallen, Grenfell felt obliged to intervene. You don't want to miss the fireworks, Rosie, do you? You run along with Harry and we'll meet up later. That's a promise. Well, she said, wavering, I'd like to see the cascades and rockets. Off you go, then, and I'll introduce myself to your mother. His quarry was standing only a few feet away, encircled by uniforms. Close up, she looked older than he'd imagined. There was the odd grey streak in her hair, faint lines at the corner of her eyes, and a slight thickening of the waist, but these signs of ageing did not diminish her allure. She spoke in a low, husky whisper, in which only the occasional flattening of a vowel betrayed her southern origin. I was fearful at first that she would pine, and said, My little darling, you must show yourself superior to these Yankees. And she replied quickly, Oh, Mama, never fear. I hate them too much. I intend to dance and sing, Jeff Davis is coming, just to scare them. What a brave little warrior, said an admiring captain. You must be very proud of her. I am indeed, sir. She never complained, although the straw cotton our cell was swarming with bedbugs and there was vermin everywhere. But you don't want to hear about our captivity on a day like today. Nor should you be wasting your time with me when there are so many attractive young women simply dying to make your acquaintance. Straining to hear what was being said, Grenville picked a glass of punch off a silver salver he'd been offered by one of Reddy's slaves. As he raised the glass to his lips, somebody knocked his elbow causing him to spill a few drops. To his horror, he saw they'd fallen on the velvet dress. Without thinking, he dropped to one knee and began to remove the stains with his handkerchief. What the devil are you doing there, sir? Dark eyes with long, sooty lashes stared down at him. God save me, this is a splendid party and no mistake. A handsome officer on his knees before me, and we haven't even been introduced. Taking the hint, he rose stiffly and kissed her hand. Colonel George St. Ledger Grenville, 2nd Kentucky Cavalry, at your service, ma'am. She looked back at him, her lips slightly parted. Rose O'Neill Greenhow, Confederate spy. Here in their midst was the notorious Mrs. Greenhow, 
The military information she'd acquired in Washington was supposed to have helped the Confederacy win the first battle of Manassas. But as Grenville got over his surprise, a question formed in the back of his mind. If she was so outspoken, how could she have been an effective spy? I employed every capacity with which God endowed me. The result was far more successful than my hopes could have flattered me to expect. Mrs. Greenhow had answered his unspoken question. Then she smiled. It was a startling, brilliant smile. Men can be such fools, she added. Their inflated egos blind them to a woman's wiles. They will tell you anything if they believe it will help them win your favour. Have I shocked you, Colonel? Not at all, ma'am. Uh, not at all, was all he could think to say. Don't call me ma'am. Call me Rose, George. You named your daughter after you, although she said I should call her Rosie. For the first time, this self-confident woman seemed taken aback. That's odd, she murmured. I'm the only one who is allowed to call her Rosie. You've obviously made an impression. And uh, in the hope that I've made some kind of impression, that's it. Thank you.